You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hi, I'm Monica Daughter, and I make dances for a living. Monica Daughter is an award-winning actor, dancer, choreographer, and director. She's been nominated for 10 Dora Awards in five different categories, and she's taken home the hardware twice. Beyond the stage, she's had turns on shows like Orphan Black, Murdoch Mysteries, and Rookie Blue. Here's my chat with Monica Daughter. Who are you and what do you make for a living? Hi, I'm Monica Daughter. I'm uh, an actor, dancer, choreographer, director, um, and sometimes writer. So a bit of everything, really. A bit of of everything. I've been, yes, I've also um, been a designer, costume designer. Yeah. And and this is for film, TV, theater, dance, everything. You You just like performance. Yes, I just kind of surf the wave of theater, dance, TV, film wherever the wind blows. Is that a regular thing? Like do people, it's been my experience that people kind of stream themselves a little bit into, you know, I'm, I'm an actor specifically. I may or may not do a little bit of writing on the side or whatever else, or I'm in theater specifically. And I'm, you know, probably don't do a lot of theater, a lot of film or television. Like how did you wind up zigzagging your way through all of these different things over the years? I think um, I've always just been, creative and always making things and i think i really just followed the winding path where it led me um i think it's probably really wise to like zone in on one thing and i have done that for periods of time and then gone to the other thing that interests me or or um and so on and so on it kind of just snowballed that way it wasn't i never had an intentional plan (laughs) (laughs) well let's roll back and start a little bit at the beginning here how did you get started and what did you get started doing well i grew up in sault ste marie ontario i grew up uh, northern ontario in a small town and um that was sort of before we i even knew that you could be an artist for a living i loved dancing i loved theater i um took piano (laughs) i did piano like lots of music lessons growing up um but I always wanted to dance um, and and act. I always wanted to do those things. But I, you know, I had very hesitant um, parents in terms of <laughs> wanting me to be to to be a, a lawyer or a doctor or right. or a teacher. You had Jewish parents. <laughs> They're close Italian parents. <laughs> there you go. Exact so, same thing. Jewish Italian yeah. parents are parents. Exactly. They all want doctors, lawyers, and accountants. That's it. Yeah, but I, I have clear memories of my mom saying, Monica, dance is just a hobby. Like, please just don't end up on solid gold, you know? So, <laughs> solid gold was awesome. What are you talking about? Oh my gosh, it would have been a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> Love that show. So I started pretty modestly. I started, um, you know, in the small town. And I I knew, I feel like from a young age, I, I always in retrospect, I feel like I, this is, that's where I always belonged. I thought everybody made up dances in their heads. You know, I thought there's music playing, you're making up a dance. Like it may not be any good, but you're making it up. (laughs) So I thought that that's how everybody's brains worked. And it was only until later that I realized, Oh, that's not, that's a, that's, that's a specific brain, I guess. So I started modestly, but then I went, then I moved to Toronto 
to go to York University. Well, but hang on, that's a, that's a huge jump there. So, like you're talking about all through high school, did you ever take a class? Where was was there art? Was there dance class available in like Sault Ste. Marie? Is, was there somebody teaching singing? I mean, because there's not always stuff around. I wanted to to learn tap dancing in Hamilton. I'm revealing oh. a lot here, people. But oh. I wanted to learn tap dancing, and I was like seven years old, and there was nowhere that taught tap in Hamilton that my folks could find pre-internet and whatever else. And so I had to settle on jazz lessons and uh, it was me and 30 girls and my father who also joined (laughs) the class every Saturday. And that's That's amazing. Yep. That's when God love him. He, he, my dad loved to dance, but, and he was a good dancer, but it was horrifying for me. And so, you know, basically we, we went every week and the recital came and I chickened out. I just threw a tantrum and would not go. And that was the end of my illustrious dance career. For a long time. Oh, Roby, except for <laughs> that we did at York University, which except, you don't seem to Yes, except for this, <laughs> this, 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 this supposed piece of dance with chairs that you say I was in, but I don't recall that, not to the best of my recollection. <laughs> See, married to a lawyer, now I have all the terminology, not to the best of my recollection. <laughs> so for years, you're in Sault Ste. Marie, and you're honing your craft. You're learning where you can. I mean, were there lessons available to you? Yeah, there were lessons available. I was I, I took um I took a lot of music lessons. I took piano very seriously and I did all of my RCMs growing up, my Royal Conservatory of Music exams. And um and I did take dance classes, but not as many as I would have liked to. I would have been in a dance studio from dawn until dusk, if you let me. Um, but I did a lot of tondus and plies in my basement. And I did a lot of community theater. There was a lot of community theater in in Sault Ste. Marie. Strangely, a very vibrant uh, community theater scene. I did dinner theater in the back of a Chinese restaurant for years and years. <laughs> you had to go through the kitchen to get from stage left to stage right. So that was a really special experience. I thought we just thought the world of it. It was a magical, magical, ridiculous way to do theater. <laughs> But it kept the it kept the the, the creative juices flowing and, and and the fire going. Like you, you did you know you were going to go to university for dance? I mean, that's how I met you. You were a dancer. Mm-hmm. You were in the dance program at York, right? Yes, actually, I, I originally was. I wasn't really allowed to go to university for dance. My first year of university was in music, and that's where I met Joel. Um, we were in the same composition class. So I was in music, I was in piano performance, and I was studying with a really great teacher at York, Christina Petrowska. And then in that year, I realized like that I wanted to be in dance. So I switched over. So then I ended up doing a double major in dance and music. I really hoped I could be in dance or in theater. I really wanted also to be an actor. So I, I wanted to be in dance or theater, but I was allowed to go into music. So I did that and then moved over. <laughs> and by allowed, you mean your parents allowed you because you had taken all these yes, classes over the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. It was like, don't, please don't end up on solid gold. You know? <laughs> I still don't know why that's a problem. Solid gold no, would be I, like oh, the I, pinnacle of my dance career. I would just be that or like Saturday Night Fever or whatever it is. Is, is that what oh, it was? It's still my dream. Still my dream. Fantastic. It doesn't exist anymore, but still my dream. <laughs> Make it on Star Search. I would be there. <laughs> Going through York, I know it was a pretty intensive program. You were doing a double in music and and in dance eventually. Was there like a big break? Was there some point at which you knew you were going to be able to do this professionally? I just really hoped I could. 
I just really wanted to. I love. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I took. I took um, it very seriously. I was a very serious student. I wanted to soak up as much as I could and absorb as much as I could while I was there. I loved being in dance class. I loved being in choreography class. I loved being in plays. Um, I. I really hoped that I could do it professionally. I didn't know if it was possible. I had a lot of doubts. Um, it's it's hard to know what the industry is like when you're in school, or or at least at that time, we didn't have like social media or the internet back then. You just kind of had to keep your head down and do your work and hope that it led to the next step and then led to the next step and then hopefully to the next step. And I just hope that it didn't lose my love for it, which, which I haven't, which is even to this day. Yeah. Even to this day. Yeah. Yeah. So while you're at school, it's it's Mm -hmm. pretty intensive and you're pretty much into it. You graduated and then like, what was, what was the first thing you did? Like, how did you get started in an industry that really didn't know you didn't really owe you anything? I mean, there's a certain loveliness to the cocoon of being at school. You apply, you get in and you know, you're going to be doing the kind of work that you're looking to do as a student. But when you get out, you know, let's be fair, you got rent to pay. You got to figure out how to meet people. You've got shows to see. You've got auditions, I'm assuming, to go to. How did it all kind of come together? Well, it wasn't always easy. In fact, it was almost never easy. It, um, I, I started to take classes downtown, especially in dance. And I started to take acting classes downtown. And I just kind of continued my education in, in a way. Like I didn't, I never considered myself to be like, I graduated now. This is it. I just kept taking little steps and kept training and kept investigating and kept, um, and then I, then I generated my own work and, and not, um, not with any like super goal in mind, just because I, I just needed, I just had something to, to say and just mate and did it. There were a lot, there was, um, a festival called the FIDA festival, the fringe festival of independent dance artists. Um, back then it's, it doesn't run anymore, but back then you were able to apply as an emerging artist and it was kind of a lottery. And, and if you got a piece in the late night series of the, you weren't allowed, you weren't able to apply for the main stage unless you were more established, but you could apply for the late night program and, um, and I did that and I, I did that a few times and made pieces and then met some colleagues through company class. We took company class at dance makers at the time, which is also no longer in existence, but we took, I took company class every day at the dance collective and at dance makers. And that's where I met, I met four other dancers and we formed a little collective together. We, and so we were in this um, uh, project based dance company called Company Blonde Dance Projects for years. And it was myself and Michelle DeBrower and Sonny Horvath and uh, Stephanie Thompson. And we we ran it for um, for a long time on and off. And it wasn't with the intention of like creating a company. We just wanted to dance. And so we, we did this thing. And then incidentally, our first show, the first show we ever produced it was called Blonde Jokes 2000. It was in the year 2000. Um, we were doing a lot of dance comedy, which is not really a genre, but <laughs> and still isn't really a genre. But we were really trying, like, fusing dance and, and comedy and, like, a bit of theater of the absurd, but but um, with humor. 
So we paired up with uh, a team of uh, sketch comedy. These women, they were called the Atomic Fireballs. And it consisted of Sam B, Samantha B, who's now like full frontal Sam B. She was on The Daily Show. And Alana Harkin, who is also on Sam B's show. And then the Carbage Bins, Fiona and Sarah. And so what we did was like we would have a dance piece and then a sketch and then a dance piece and then a sketch. And that allowed us time to change costumes. (laughs) But we had rented a venue. The venue we rented was uh, the Opera House on Queen Street. That's a big venue. Well, yeah. I mean, at the time, it's now really renovated and beautiful. But at the time, it was kind of a decrepit roadhouse. And we rented it. It was like uh, um, for a weekend, printed up all the posters. These were in the days where you had to print posters and postcards and out of, uh, you know, out of your own pocket and you're taking ticket reservations on the phone, writing it down in a ledger book with pencil, <laughs> those kinds of things. So we booked this venue, we signed a contract with them. And then about two weeks before the show, the the opera house called us and said, we're going to have to move your dates. The Rolling Stones want to play those dates. <laughs> and we were like, oh, no. Bumped by the stones. No, we can't. We can't, well, we were, we were like not willing to give up our dates. We said, no, we can't, we can't, sorry. And they were were like, no, no, this, the Rolling Stones want to play those dates. We have to move your dates. We were like, we paid a thousand dollars for postcards and we've already sold tickets. We cannot move our dates. I don't know what happened to the Rolling Stones, but we played our dates. They just went over to the ACC or something. I guess they went over to the ACC, but like our, our very first, um, foray into producing was like saying no to the Rolling Stones. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why you've never danced for Mick ever. I know. And so that, that really blackballed by the stones. Yeah. (laughs) That's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we just basically, I mean, the answer to your question, I guess is like, we just started to generate our own work and, and did what we can when we could and just kept, training it seemed that you get that by continuing your education even after school you found community mm-hmm. and you found mm-hmm. a group of like-minded people to create with what was the response to stuff like that i mean it, it was impossible to get people out i'm sure at the time it's hard mm-hmm. to get the word out i mean even now with social media and everything you can you, you can shout through your megaphone and it still can be really difficult to get people to come out so what was it like building your career one little show at a time over the over this time while you built the relationships with people as well. Yeah, I mean, I think like it's it's really difficult to control who comes to see your work and and who 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 likes your work. And, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of I always think back to to uh, a Martha Graham quote <laughs> when she says like it's it's not your business as an artist to determine how good the work is or how people are going to perceive your work. Your, your job is just to keep your channel open and, and do the work basically. So I think I always live by that philosophy of hopefully people will come and hopefully people will, will engage with it in a way, engage with the work in a way that is meaningful to them or not meaningful to them or evokes a feeling in them or, or, or leads them to a thought or, or something. But you can't control who's going to be able to Who's going to be able to come and who's going to 
um, like it. Well, what keeps you motivated? I mean, you always wanted to dance and you always wanted to, to, to act, but there's a lot of different ways to dance and to act. And there's a lot of different types of stuff. I mean, technically speaking, just being on TV in a really crappy sitcom, that's acting. Was it high art that attracted you initially? Was it ballet? Was it that type of stuff? Or was it, was it trying to express something else that really drew you in? It was kind. It was a bit of both. I was very, very drawn to ballet. I I loved ballet because it had how hard it was, how my muscles hurt afterwards, how much work you had to put into it in order to get something out of it. And I think that that really that really motivated me for a long time. Like how much work you have to put in, and then I loved the feeling of sore muscles and and you know Epsom salt baths and. <laughs> <laughs> All of that self-care after um, working really hard for, uh, for a day in, in the studio. But I feel like I also, there was a split side that also wanted to be on solid gold. Right? So I think that those two things were always... I'm a Gemini, so maybe that's why... Maybe it goes... <laughs> that's that's the, two, the two things that sort of come together. You know, I love making things. I love making things. Like, I love... I love uh, performing art of being a performer, but I also don't necessarily need an audience. <laughs> I also don't necessarily need any need anybody to to see it. I, I actually am uh, strangely a little bit shy. <laughs> you hear that often from performers. Actually, there's a part of them that likes to get into a role so that they can mask themselves and just mm-hmm. reveal little bits in context yeah. and all that. Yeah. Yeah, I think what I like about theater so much is, and uh, dance and theater so much is that you can create, you create a world and then you can live in it for a while and then you can go home. It's magic. Let me ask you about inspiration and ideas. I think a lot of people in their youth, and I know myself, I thought I had a lot to say. I thought I, I had real strong opinions about very definite things and I tried to put them into music. I tried to put them into film and things like that. Were you similarly inclined as part of what drove you that you had something to say and therefore you had to get it out through your art? Was that a major driver for you? I feel like that's true for sure. For sure. Um, didn't always know how to say it or in what medium to, to say it, but, but yes, always had that, that, um, that motivation or, or something to like a story to tell. Was, was there ever a time where you thought, Geez, I, I've said everything I've got to say. I have nothing more to give. Did, oh, did, sure. Has the well ever run dry? And what did you do to kind of fix that? I yeah, sure. I mean, there's choreographically. I feel like there's there is there is like an equivalent to like writer's block where you kind of get stuck and you're like, oh, I, this is I'm just maintaining my own status quo here, and I don't know how to move past it. And you know, some things that I turn to are nature, science. Um, when I get really stuck in choreography, I, I look at videos of meerkats. They're <laughs> hilarious. They're very funny. <laughs> and somehow in the, like watching those guys, something always sparks a little bit of creativity <laughs> when I do that. Or like packs of sheep or flamingos migrating pattern. Like they're funny. Like nature can be really funny. Yeah, my kid and I both get really into the. Uh, have you ever seen? I don't know what kind of birds they are, but they're they're on the uh, David Attenborough 
kind of planet earth or whatever they are. And they're the, the, the birds that dance in order to attract a mate. And they just do the oh, most yeah. demented little dances. I love them. And so we both just, <laughs> me and my kid are hanging out in the, in the house, trying to imitate these little birds dancing around and try to impress I each mean, other. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if there's anything that can get, you know, give you a little um, motivation, it's, it's kind of found in the simple, it can be found in the simplest little part of nature. And also bigger ideas. I, I'm fascinated with the, there's a scientific theory. Um, have you ever heard of quantum entanglement? Yes, but so I don't know anything about it. <laughs> That's all I've heard of it. Yes. Well, I can, I can give you the choreographic definition Please. of it. Yes. If there's any scientists out there listening, this is like from the perspective of a dancer. <laughs> it's like, so there's a, this theory, quantum entanglement, and it's like if you take a particle and you break it in two, and you send them out into the universe in different directions. Like what you do to this particle mm -hmm. will affect this particle. Right. And even though they're not together. And so I feel like that, that, that theory inspires me a lot, just in terms of um, humanity, how we're all connected somehow and how um, the endless possibilities of those connections and, and how it can be, th there can be a particle on the other side of the universe that you're connected to and you don't even know it. So sometimes like going, going back to that small theory, if I'm stuck, if I'm feeling choreographic writer's block, those, those kinds of things can, can re-inspire me. What would be the ultimate goal? What are you trying to achieve with your performance, with the work that you make, with the stuff you do for others? What are you trying to do and say? That is such a huge question, Roby. <laughs> well, you were talking about what? quantum entanglement. I figure let's blow this whole thing up. <laughs> let's do this. Up. <laughs> what am I trying to say? That's a really good question. I think I don't really know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I think what I'm trying to, I think what what I what inspires me is to follow my bliss in a way and see where that leads me and to find joy and curiosity in these in these things and try and make them into art and and i hope and i hope that it it if it reaches people that maybe it it it's it can trigger something in them a memory uh, a connection and 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 you know i i had a there was a choreographer that once said like in in modern dance there's often nothing to get but everything to feel and I, and I feel like that's really, really interesting. Like if, if, if it connects, if it connects to something, I think, I think I'm just like, like most artists just hope that I can connect. Yeah. I, I think that, I think, and I'm speaking for myself here, but I think a fair number of people as well, that dance is always a very difficult art form for a lot of people to take in on its own. And I don't mean, you know, synchronous dancing like you know uh, um, a dance pack at a basketball game or something like that you know i mean like modern dance where there are thoughts feelings in and narrative and things that are trying to be uh, uh conveyed and it can be really hard i think for folks because it's not a language that a lot of folks are used to speaking exclusively in in other words we all move while we're talking and, and many of us you know dance while we're singing and so on and so forth but it's usually an addendum and not usually the, the you know the primary means of communicating mm -hmm. for a lot of folks. And so it can be difficult yeah. to do that. So, so I always find it interesting as well that it, the parallel to me with that is, is always modern art or, you know, abstract art yeah. where 
you know, it's just a big splat of red on a canvas. And to most people, they mm-hmm. go, oh, crap, my two-year-old does that. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't get it. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. always interesting that the MO of the artist is to, as you're saying, at least evoke a feeling, even mm-hmm. if the actual intent may be confusing. Yeah, and so, sometimes in sometimes in art, it, it it feels like that theory of like what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it, and I feel like that can be true with any piece of art. Like, what are you investing in it personally, even as an observer? Um, what can sometimes you have to go a little bit deeper to to find something to connect to, and sometimes you don't connect at all, and that's okay too. But I think like chore- choreographically, sometimes I think about choreography as like kind of an opportunity to communicate in subliminal messages because movement has this power to say something more visceral when, when words fail. So I, when I'm, when I'm working choreographically, I feel like it, it often, I often want it to represent the emotional undercurrent of the scene. Like if I'm choreographing a musical or if I'm choreographing a play or a concert dance piece, you're like, what is the scene saying? And what are these people feeling? And then choreography has the power to, to, to hold space for that emotional undercurrent. And, and if you, and if, if you pay attention when you're choreographing, you can help represent that emotional undercurrent and support the text or support the song or so so that's I'm really interested in that. I think it's really like that subliminal messaging ability of movement. You are well into your career. You are an a, an experienced performer on film, television, stage. You're a mom, you're a wife to a partner who's also in similar business. Mm-hmm. theater and film. How do you make this work on a day-to-day basis? Because most people have pretty simple nine-to-five jobs, relatively, and that's even complicated with kids and a partner who's also working. How does this kind of all work with you guys? Well, it's something that it's different every day. Everything Every day is is different, and, and it's a little bit like living in the circus, growing <laughs> up in the circus. Um, sometimes literally. And so I do work in contemporary circus quite a bit. So sometimes it's literally in the circus and sometimes I just have to bring him to the circus. And then other times it it is very much like he, we keep his schedule pretty, pretty consistent. His being your son, right? My son, my son. Yeah. His schedule pretty consistent. Um, and Ryan, my husband, Ryan Holliman, he's an actor and we, we just kind of play it by ear. And again, it's a little bit like surfing the wave. <laughs> like, what is this bringing us? And, and like, where is this bringing us? And what, what do you need to do today? What do I need to do today? Or sometimes it forces you to be really organized. And other times it just forces you to be a, a clown. So <laughs> and just that's parenting in general, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> flail around and then hope everything lands in the right, in the right place. But so far, we've managed to juggle it all. And um, yeah, it's never a dull moment. It's never dull. <laughs> what about time and energy management? I mean, you know, you, you're, it takes a lot to raise a kid. It takes a lot to be a good partner. It takes a lot to, to be a normal civilian and not be in, in, in the arts. 
You know, I find that the arts is particularly difficult because it, it it's always done when everybody else is relaxing. In other words, the arts for everybody else is something that they're taking in, they're ingesting, and it's, oh, I'm done work, I'm going to go flip on the tube and see what's on, or I'm going to go and see a show, or I'm going to... But for people that are in the arts, they're working when everyone else is relaxing, and, and that can be tough. You know, is that difficult in terms of, you know, your relationships with people outside of the business? Well, I think... I mean, I, I feel like a lot of our a lot of our friends and and uh, people that we we see in non pandemic times <laughs> are artists, and we understand the artist's way and the the artist's life and and what the work is. And and you know, we we both have been doing it for so long and with so much joy. I can't imagine doing doing it any other way. It's not. It's it's not easy it's definitely not easy but i de- but i 100% we both love what we do and i feel like there there are times when i feel like i won the lottery in life because i get to do this and i get to um make a living doing this and it just feels really like i just feel really lucky that i get to what happens when the two of you are both booked on shows how do you make it make sense with, with with the kid? I mean, your kid's on is going to school and has friends and has a schedule and soccer and who the hell knows what else, you know. You know, what happens when there's conflict that way? It is it is tricky for sure, but it's but what's not tricky is that our priority is always him. And that's like the number one. And I think like keeping that as part of the conversation when we're talking with whoever's our employers at the time and saying like, this is the, this is, this is the most important thing. Right. And we can only do these things if this is handled with the utmost care. If our, if our child, if our child's well-being is handled with the utmost care. So in that regard, um, it, it, it will work out if it's meant to work out. And there have been times there's that I'm, I'm often like floored and humbled by how how accommodating people can be with families uh, also i feel like on our end on mine and brian's end we also have to be okay with letting some things go professionally because our priority is very clear and when you're talking about speaking with employers and um and i'm assuming that this means you know things like producers and um mm-hmm. you know directors and and so on and so forth are you do you have a team in place? Do you both have agents and managers oh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff that's all working in concert with you? Yes, we do. We both have we both have agents and they are we both are so lucky. We have wonderful agents. My my agent is Patrick Yang at Oldfield Management and Brian's agent is Maria Rowley at at um, ETM and they're both so wonderful. I think what's great about them and, and what I feel like so, so lucky to, we, we feel so lucky to have them because they really believe in artists and they really believe in the art life balance. And so it, it is always a gentle conversation and it is always a, a gentle negotiation. Yeah. They're so helpful. They're so, so helpful. Was it hard to get an agent in the first place? I mean, is that something that came pretty quickly for both of you or have you, have you had a number of them over the years or you pretty much, you know, stick with them? No, we, we've both had a number of them over the years. And um, the first agent that I ever had was actually a modeling agent and uh, B&M models. 
they, I was working as a server at the keg mansion and I was serving them and they, they said, I think we want to represent you. <laughs> and I was like, okay. It's like, really? I actually didn't believe it. But then I called them and then it turned out and turned into a, a wonderful relationship for years. And then I moved on to a more principal acting agent and finally sort of landed with, with Patrick. And I feel like with Patrick, it's more of a, more of a partnership than it ever has been. And, but, but yeah, it's not generally not for me, the, that first agency was very easy. We just connected over, um, stakes literally. <laughs> and, uh, but in, it's not always easy. It's not always easy to get an agent. Yeah. I mean, I hear a lot of folks, you know, tell stories about how they kind of got lucky. They got discovered, but really you also have to put in all the work. You have to yeah. be good enough to be discovered. You have to be in the right place. I mean, granted the keg mansion is not the place, but you know, they could have said to you, Hey, we want to represent you. And you could be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to medical school, so I'm not really interested. Like, in other words, you may not have been interested in that path in the least bit. So you never really know if you, you know, it, there's a certain amount of, of luck and good fortune. There is. And what, like, I believe in what Oprah says about luck. I believe everything Oprah says. I believe everything Oprah says 100% (laughs) of the time, but this for sure resonated so much where she said, luck, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And I do think that is true. Thank you, Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) So I know that you are, um, self-proclaimed horrible at marketing but oh yeah you've told me that you've you you promoted a show at the opera house early in in your career with you know with, with flyers and a and a ledger and, and and you know i'm sure an early cell phone have you have, have any of your marketing tactics or techniques gotten any better are you using anything that's particularly useful to you as an actor as a as somebody who's making and creating uh on their own how do you how do you let get the word out well, there are usually people who are much better at that than I am. I'm a bit of a, I'm, I'm a bit flaky. I, it's a wonder that anybody knows what I'm doing ever because I can really um, forget about that part of things. But there are, there are really gifted producers and, and uh, um, marketing teams and um, people who are really good at that. So usually... If there's a good marketing team, you'll you'll hear about what I'm doing, and if there isn't, it probably won't. You won't, <laughs> <laughs> because I am notoriously terrible at that. There's a lot to be said for working with people who know what they're doing. I mean, there are pros in all of these different disciplines. You wouldn't want to work with uh, an actor who was really actually good at marketing versus a marketer who's good at acting. Wait, I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. But bottom line is, you got to be going with the pros. Yeah, you, you hope they're better at acting than they are at marketing, or or maybe they're equal in both. But but for me, I just I literally just forget about that part of things, or I like anxiety builds up about like forgetting to credit somebody, or 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 credit or or crediting the wrong person, or like who took the picture or who did. Like there are people who are very good at that and very good at yeah at, at, at promoting promoting their work. So. I get stuck on those the details of like I don't want to leave anybody out and I don't want to you know so it it, it often hinders me from from putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of advice might you give to somebody who's looking to get into performance, be it on the stage, on the screen, dancing, singing, 
acting, the whole thing. What would you say to somebody who's just starting off? I think I would say find the joy, follow your bliss, love it. Like find the lo- always remember what you love about it. If you're finding the joy in something, it will lead you to the thing that you find the most joy in. So following your bliss may take you in another on another journey, but maybe that's okay. Maybe it'll circle back. What happens when someone is talentless? Like what if they find their bliss? They they enjoy, they love dance, but they mm-hmm. suck at dance. Like at mm-hmm. what point do you pull the plug? How do you know, you know, that it's time to stop or stop at least thinking about it professionally? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, I feel like that's such an individual question. I feel like you're the only one that could answer that for yourself. I would never tell somebody to, to pull the plug if they're still finding joy and bliss in it. I would say, go, go for that. That being said, like you do, you might need to supplement it with something else. You might need to, um, you know, take a little something on the side, but I, I like, I would never discourage somebody from following an artistic path or a creative path, whether or not you make a total, like make money from it. For me, it's, it's, it's neither here nor there. I'm so, I feel so lucky that I could make a living doing this and that people allow me to do this. I feel very grateful for that. But I also feel like we can all, you, you can find art in, in, in many things. And I would never discourage somebody from not, from, from quitting. Like, I think you should always follow a creative path and then supplement it with something else if you want to, if you need to. But there's no, there's no shame in that, I think. So where can people find out a little bit more about you? I don't know, Roby. Where can people find more well, about Well, you can head on over to <laughs> monicadaughter.ca. I'm there now. I, there's pictures and I things. Actually, <laughs> I actually think it's monicadaughter.com, is it? Dot com. I screwed it up. Monicadaughter.com. There you will find her biography, her acting credits, upcoming projects, directing credits, choreography credits, some media, video, press, and, of course, contact information. Yes. I do have, I did do a, a little Christmas movie that's coming out in, at Christmas. Oh, that, that would you? make sense. Oh. Yeah. What's, oh, okay. what's the Christmas movie? It's called 8-Bit Christmas, and it's uh, Warner Brothers, and it, it is about... Um, a kid, it's set in the 80s, and it's about a kid who goes on a mission to buy a Nintendo. Nice. It's the year Nintendo first came out, and it's really, I think it's going to be really funny. Yeah. What's your role in it? I play the mom of the only kid in town who has a Nintendo. Oh, that mom. <laughs> the mom that bought the kid the yeah. Nintendo. Yeah. That's called the exactly. good mom. Yeah. yeah. We know that mom. <laughs> what is it like to be cast as the mom now? Is that weird? Love it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. It's such an honor. It's such an honor. I mean, I love being a mom and I have so much respect for all mothers, Mother Earth included. So I feel like it's such an honor. Well, Monica, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living. Oh, thanks, Roby. <laughs> Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>